My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. I'm coming to you from the Hickson campus of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we'd love to have you come and visit us. But if you're not in the area, please go to OurSundaySchool.com to see all of the resources we saw in class. Good morning, everybody. Well, welcome to Our Sunday School. Uh, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and make your way over to Nahum. Uh, that's where we'll be today. Uh, if you want to follow along, and you may actually want to today, those of you that have a tablet or a, uh, uh, a larger device that you can pull up a document on, to go to OurSundaySchool.com, uh, click on the Read tab, and then go to Week 3, and then click on the little white T for the teacher notes, uh, because there's a whole... I have 12 pages of teacher notes today. And some of you are like, it's, I've already closed the doors, it's awkward to leave now, so it's okay. The, uh, Julie's like, I'll still leave, it's okay. I heard that. Yes, I did. The, uh, but there's gobs and gobs and gobs of stuff in Nahum chapter 2, which is where we are today. So this is week 3 of this series. Uh, in weeks 1 and 2, we looked at uh, how to pronounce Nahum, where Nahum is in the Bible, the historical, political, uh, geographical context, and then a word-by-word look at the original Hebrew uh, in order to draw out some applications and personalizations. And in today's lesson, we're going to read through Nahum 1 and 2 to get the context of Nahum 2. Uh, and then look for applications and personalizations there. And I am, I am going to, like, um, so my boss likes martinis. We'll do that as an introduction. Uh, and does anybody know what martinis have in them as far as the ingredients? It's an olive. There's an olive in there, right? And there's gin and vermouth, right, right. It's better shaken, not stirred. That's right. And, and my boss's directions, to, and I'm sure he stole this from somebody, but my boss's directions on how to tell the bartender to make his uh, martini is to, you put in the gin, and then you give a stern look to the vermouth, and then you put the olive in. <laughs> right? So that's what we're going to do with Hebrew verbs today. We're going we're gonna to look at Nahum 2, and we're going to give a stern look to the verbs, and just kind of just, we're just going to touch on something, and then we're going to come back to Hebrew, uh, Nahum 2. And sometime in the next two weeks, we'll go back and we'll actually talk a little bit more about Hebrew verbs because there's way too much content today for uh, a big, thorough dissection of Hebrew verbs. So with that, let's uh, go ahead and start reading. We'll read Nahum 1 and 2, and then we'll jump into today's uh, lesson. Nahum 1, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time, for while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, 
a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe, and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk, and they make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed, she shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up. And her maidservants shall lead her as with the voice of doves, beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt! Halt! they cry. But no one turns back. Take spoil of silver. Take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The hearts melt. The knees shake. Much pain is in every side. And all their faces are drained of color. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion walked and the lioness and the lion's cub, and no one made them afraid? The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lioness, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. Yay! <laughs> All right, grab your handouts. Here we go. <clears throat> so, we talked about this last week. Nahum is what? Literary structural observations. Nahum is what? It is poetry, yes. I read a commentary this morning, actually, the ESC Study Bible, that called it war poetry. I thought, yes, that feels like a great term I've never heard of before, but I, I like that quite a bit. And in Nahum chapter 2... In Nahum chapter 2, uh, I want to talk about something because the, the focus shifts. So look at the section there, are there any repeated words? See all the, the stuff that I've listed for you there? If you were to go through and count how many times the word lion or lioness or lionesses shows up, did, did anybody pay attention to that as you went through? Four times, that's right, Skip, very good, four times. <clears throat> he's either got the teacher notes up or he's... Uh, he actually read the text. He's got the teacher notes up. That's good. So we've got lion and lioness and lionesses. And we talked about this uh, last week, I believe. The uh, Ashurbanipal, the king of Assyria at this time, was famous for his collection of these cuneiform arts, artifacts. Uh, and there, there's a, um, uh, a British museum that has hundreds of these, but we found over 22,000 of them. 
So it's not like, oh, he just had a few. No, no, this was, this was a big collection, a massive collection of cuneiform art, and a bunch of these had to do with lions because this was a, a uh, kind of the, almost the national symbol of Assyria, if you will. So you got four times lion, lioness, lionesses show up, and how many times does the Lord show up in chapter 2? What well, we got there, Sean? Two. Two times in chapter 2. So how many times did the Lord show up in chapter 1? A whole lot more than two. The Lord was the focus of chapter 1. You have this mighty warrior that comes in and demonstrates that no one can stand against him. And in chapter 2, Nahum starts to articulate who it is the warrior is standing against. So the, the focus here in chapter 2 shifts from the Lord to Nineveh. So that's your next blank. And Nineveh has more ease than you can imagine. So first is an I, and then the rest are ease. I always want to put two I's in Nineveh, and spell check gets me every time. So it's like, nope, not right. All right, so let's look at a couple other literary and structural observations. So I want you to look at uh, verse 3, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. And I want you to focus on the pronouns in verse 3. The shields of his mighty men are made red, the valiant men are in scarlet, the chariots come with flaming torches, and the day of his preparation the spears are brandished. Are, are we talking there about the people attacking the city or are the people defending the city? How many are, think, I think, defending? It's okay, it's all right. How many of you think, I think, attacking? How many of you are like, I'm not really sure? All right, so do you remember how in week one we talked about Nahum used a partial acrostic poem to demonstrate that they're just perhaps through the structure of the book that this is not going to be an orderly, nice, neat process? A lot of Hebrew poetry experts look at this and they say, warfare is messy, it is hard, it is, you lose communication very easily. It is not nice and neat and clean. And Nahum is using, by his lack of nouns, a literary device to describe and put the reader into, like, wait, where are, we, where are we? He wants you in that mindset as you read through this, because that's the mindset he wants the Ninevites in, because judgment is coming upon them. So that's how good a poet Nahum is, that he's intentionally leaving out nouns to put you in a confused state as you read through. You're going... That's pretty impressive. Yep. And it kind of makes sense because God is the author of all language. So the idea that, uh, that he could uh, make things work in this space, absolutely. It's not a problem at all. All right. So uh, he does this a couple other times in Nahum chapter 2, but I'll just go there. Now, if you look at your handout, so look through all three pages of it, do you see anything that looks different than a normal handout from my Sunday school class? should be something that kind of jumps out at you. What's that? Uh, it's left corrected? Well, it's poetry, so it's, it's over there, yeah. Yeah, that's normal, normally different than narrative, right? Anything else from the formatting? There's, there's no blanks, yes, that's right, which should tell you that we're going to move at a pretty quick clip today, right? <laughs> I don't have time to wait on you to write. <laughs> We're going to move. Uh, but there's a bunch of stuff bolded. Right? And I, don't I rarely, rarely do that. Just bold words for no reason. Well, I, I didn't bold them for no reason. This is where we're going to glance at Hebrew just for a second. 
So Hebrew has um, different pro- Hebrew verbs have different properties, just like uh, Greek verbs have different properties. Hebrew verbs have person, so first, second, third person. Hebrew verbs have number, singular, plural. Hebrew verbs have gender. Uh, Hebrew verbs have a voice, so active, passive, middle. Uh, Hebrew verbs have what's called an, a- an aspect, uh, and this is simple, intensive, or causal. So if I say, um, he walks, that's just simple action. He walks really hard. That's intensive. You see the intensity? There's more intensity. And he caused himself to walk. That's the causal. So the subject is causing the action to actually occur. So what I have done here is I have bolded all of the different variants of Hebrew verbs, the types, uh, where there is intensive action, where it is not a oh, this is nice and neat and calm, everything's okay. This is the intense version of the verb. So I just want you to look through pages 6, 7, and 8, and how many times an intense verb is used. You, you feel that? Now, some of you may have wondered, like, how do we know where to put punctuation in the text? Well, in Hebrew, it's actually helpful because you can either, you can either say a word very softly and then put an exclamation point, or you can stretch it out and make it a much stronger term and sometimes still put an exclamation point or or maybe not. Uh, But it tells us where to emphasize. And you may have heard me when I was reading Nahum 2, I got very stern a couple spots during the text. Did you hear that? It's these intense moments. It actually helps the reader know how to read through the text. So that's our glance. We're going to come back chapter 2. All right, you ready? Here we go. So let's talk about what the words mean. So he who scatters or dashes or breaks into pieces has come up before your face. So who is the scatterer here? Who did we just get done talking about in chapter 1? Who's doing the scattering? It's a really easy question. The Lord is doing the scattering, right? Absolutely, the Lord is doing the scattering. Um, we talked about last week how God will topple nations uh, at his will because this is, he, he is the one that is uh, imposing his will and his sovereignty uh, on the world. So this next statement here, do you see how they, they come at you very quickly? Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. These, it's almost like a military commander barking out orders. So who is writing here? Who is writing? Like, this is easy. Okay, thank you. I thought, oh, this is a pretty simple question. So Nahum's writing, and who's he talking to? Who would the Ninevite army never listen to? They would never listen to an Israeli prophet. Right? They are not going to listen to orders from an Israeli prophet. Do you see the taunting that he is doing here? He is taunting them. I'm going to give their army commands. So I want you to think about something as we go through today's text. And if you remind me, we'll talk about it at the end. Is it right to taunt enemies of God? <laughs> that was the conclusion I came to. God put these words in his mouth and told him to write them down. That is right for him to do that. So man the fort, or to observe, make sure that this is strong. Watch the road. You can see people coming from a long way. Remember, they're up on the walls. Strengthen your flanks, so make sure your men are arranged uh, orderly. But I want to look at this word flanks there in verse 1. Um, all right, Darla, this is for you. Whoa. <laughs> 
And right there, folks, was as much emotion you'll ever get out of Miss Darla. Right there. All right. This word means greyhound. It means loins or side. Because you can see all into, I'm going to get too graphic here, the greyhound because everything is lifted up and you can see everything. But you can see the side, the, the ribs of the side here. Strengthen your flanks. This is another, if it's not used in a military term, this word almost means, you, you've read in the Old Testament, gird up your loins, right? Grab everything up, we're about to run, we're about to go do battle. This is the idea here. So there you go, Darla. You got a greyhound. How many great, you, you have greyhounds, right? You have two greyhounds, and their names are? Alexandria and Victoria. There you go. So, so there's that. Okay, so um, <clears throat> do you see the, the, uh, the pael, the, the watch, the strengthen, the fortify, pael, pael, pael? These intensive uh, imperatives, these are commands. So Nahum is commanding the Assyrian army to do this. Verse 2, for the Lord, Jehovah, will restore, will recover again the excellence or the pomp, the swelling of Jacob. Now, who's Jacob? Is Jacob a good guy or a bad guy? He's on the good guy's side, right? The excellence of Jacob, like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. So these Assyrians have come in. They have invaded this land. They have emptied things out. And Nahum is saying here, the Lord's going to restore Israel. So verse 3, the shield or the, the buckler, the, the scales of his mighty men. This word for mighty men also means champion. Uh, it's the same word used to describe Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. The shields of his mighty men are made red. And remember, that's an intensive word. So this is very red. So why would shields of warriors be red? Yeah, blood. You, there's also a lot of folks that think that they may have been painted red just as a scare tactic. you got this army marching on you, and you look out and you see all these red shields coming at you. Um, that's a good scare tactic, right? The valiant men are in scarlet. Now I want you to see the synonymous parallelism here, right? So the shields of his mighty men are made red. His men are made red. The, the valiant men are in scarlet. This consistent men color, men color. This is the this consistency of, of meaning here. Now, Ezekiel 23.14 actually tells us that the Babylonians wore red. And do you remember who I told you last week overthrows Nineveh? Babylonians and the Medes. So not only is Nahum calling out how they're going to be overthrown, he's actually tipping his hand a bit to who's going to do the overthrowing, which is stunningly amazing. And isn't that just crazy that he knew how this was going to happen? It's amazing stuff. So the valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots, the, these wagons, they come up with flaming torches in the day of preparation, the day of provision, and the spears are brandished. You, now, you may have a different translation. You may have a different translation in the New King James that you're reading out of for verse 4, for the spears are brandished. Anybody have something different? Nobody? Bueller? Bueller? Nothing? The spears are poisoned. Yep, yep. The, the idea is that uh, terribly shaken. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that you can translate this word, but it, um, a lot of people think that this is the chariots come with flaming torches. This either is actually flaming torches, but the word just means to, 
to alternate or to oscillate. It could be if you see people with armored horses coming at you from a distance and the sun is shining on armor, it's going to flicker in the distance. So you've got these red shields, flickering armor. It looks like lightning is coming at you. That's, that's probably going to invoke some fear and some terror in your heart, right? So verse 4, the chariots rage. Again, this is an intensive word in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. Now we think this is um, the invaders are either coming in or this is the, the chariots inside the city getting ready to go out. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem, they look like torches. Again, this, uh, this lightning. They run like lightning. Verse 5, he remembers his nobles. Now, who, who would this be talking about? He remembers his nobles. So you see this invading army coming, and then he remembers his nobles. We think this is actually Ashurbanipal, the king of Assyria. Because this invading army has so overwhelmed him, he forgot he had an army himself. He's like, oh, yeah, like I have strong guys too. He remembers his nobles. They, his nobles, stumble in their walk. They are so shaken. The people that are going to lead his army against them are so shaken that they're stumbling over themselves. Now, if you are a member of an army and you see your generals and your captains stumbling over themselves because of fear, how do you feel? (laughs) I'm not going to be feeling good at all. I'm going to feel really, really crazy, right? They make haste to her walls. And the defense is prepared. All right, I'm looking at your Bibles again. Anybody have a different translation for the defense is prepared? I think this is a really, um, I, I hesitate to ever say stuff like this, but the, this is not as strong or clear a language in the New King James as it could have been. It could have been a lot more clear here. Um, the defense is prepared. I'm going to teach you a new word. Your new word today is mantelet. This is a mantelet. And if you've seen movies like... Uh, Braveheart, or if you've seen any of the Lord of the Rings movies, you've probably seen something like this. Now, this is, anybody know what this is? Trebuchet, right? This is a mantelet. This is, if you have trebuchets and you're going to lay siege to a set of walls, you have to get close to those walls. If you're the guy going to get close to the walls, I would like something to protect me from whatever crap they're going to throw at me on top of the wall, right? And that's what this is. Here's a uh, a prettier version of one. Uh, this is outside of France, actually. And you, you wouldn't have had a big hole in it. I mean, that would have made no sense. This is a decorative one, right? Many times they would have poured oil on the invaders. Uh, so you, you certainly wouldn't want a hole in it and get oil on you, right? This is crazy. Um, you might have wanted a very small hole to be able to see through, but you want something to protect you from arrows and all sorts of things are going to throw back at you. So this is the word that could very easily be used right here. The defense is prepared. Uh, and if you are attacking a city there's, and you've got a wall, there's really only three ways you can get, take care of the wall. You can go over the wall, right? You can go through the wall, or you can go under the wall, right? Well, tunneling was not a wise idea here for the Babylonians and the Medes because what they had done is that they had dammed up the river north of Nineveh. So the water is building, the water is building, the water is building. And what they're actually going to do is once sufficient water builds up and the city is dried out, you cut off water supply to a city, this is going to be very bad for the city. They're going to break the dam, the river comes through, floods the city, 
very bad for the city. This is why Nahum talks about flooding as he goes through, because this is one of the things that was used against them. But you wouldn't want to tunnel under the wall if your objective was to flood the city. Everybody with me here? Because you don't need men in the tunnels while you're, I mean, that's just bad for you. Nobody's going to volunteer for that. Hey, we want to dig a hole? We're going to flood the town. This is the pass. And the, going through the walls of Nineveh was not an option. This was a massive, massive city. There would not have existed sufficient military technology at the time to go through the walls of Nineveh. So that leaves you with one option. You're going over. If you're going over, then you need a lot of things to protect your men as you get very, very close. Because you don't climb something unless you're next to it. So you have to get very, very close to it. So this is what they're actually using to get over the walls. So... They're close, and then we come to verse 6. The gates of the rivers are opened. So you see it? They've dammed them up ahead, ahead. Now they've opened these up, and the water comes rushing in. And we actually have two different independent historians that have looked at, um, that were actually from this time period, Assyrian historian, one Assyrian, one non-Assyrian, one uh, Babylonian, that wrote about the flooding that occurred in Nineveh in 612 B.C. And Nahum just describes it here. So the gates of the city are open, and the palace is dissolved. It's fainted, it melts away. This is the same word used back in chapter 1, verse 5, of the earth and how it melts at the presence of the Lord. Because this is what happens to his enemies. One of the books that I have here says, The destruction of Nineveh is settled by the Almighty, and so it is. And so it ever shall be with all God's enemies. That's the way this works. She shall be led away captive, this intensity again. She shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her with the voice of doves beating their breasts. And you might look at this maidservants part and go, wait, what's that talking about? All right, go back to chapter 1 and look at verse... We're going to look at verse 14. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. They went in, the Babylonians and the Medes went into the temple of the Ninevites and destroyed their gods. Because the Ninevites would have viewed this as we just lost all of our power. This is one of the first things an invading army does when you invade a territory is you destroy the temples uh, or you take away the artifacts. If, if you remember, the Philistines did this with the Israelites when they took away what? They took away the Ark of the Covenant. Did that work out well for them? No. What did happen to them? Yes. There's like very bad intestinal issues for a few days and then some people died and then they're going, we're just going to leave it alone. So they left it like out in the middle of nowhere. And then everybody realized we should probably handle this thing very carefully. And, you know, you have the old Isaiah incident and all that. So that's what this verse 7 is talking about. Her maidservant shall lead her with the voice of doves, beating their breasts. These were the servants in the temple that no longer had a servant role to do. We are wailing because our temple is now gone. So he's describing this in great detail. Verse 8, though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water. So they had all these rivers around. Uh, now they flee away. Halt. Halt, they cry. But no one turns back. The interesting thing is that uh, a lot of times when 
ancient cities were uh, overtaken, they'd be rebuilt because it was great land, it was a great area, it was a good geographical position. Nineveh's never rebuilt. Like today, Nineveh has not been rebuilt. Like 2,600 years later, nobody's built anything on that land. That's, that's what I call a sufficient defeat, right? We are, we are uh, I would say that's shock and awe, right? <laughs> We're definitely in the uh, thoroughness. No one turns back. Verse 9, take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. And that's what the Babylonians and the Medes did. Uh, their kings wrote uh, victory uh, narratives about the battle at Nineveh. It actually took, they, uh, they sieged the city for like two years, and the whole, the whole conquest took 12 uh, but the actual battle itself was just a couple of days once they let the water go through. And they went through, and they, the Medes came in, and they just they pulled all the gold out. And the Babylonians were really focused on uh, uh, the, uh, the physical uh, items in the city, but the Medes were just, they're just uh, mercenaries, and away they went. And then verse, uh, the rest of verse 9, of, of, there is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. Verse 10, she is empty, desolate, and waste. All right. I'm going to try my hand at a little bit of Hebrew here, okay? There's uh, alliteration in Hebrew that is going on here, which happens very infrequently in Hebrew. Because remember, Hebrew is about meaning. It's not about sounds. So there's alliteration in Hebrew, and each word of these, there's three words, empty, desolate, and waste, each word is one syllable longer than the last one. And it's got this rhythmic kind of intense. We're getting more intense as you go through. It's bukal, mebukal, ummebukal. That's the poetry here. So he is rhyming with meaning and with sound and keeping a poetic structure as he does it. This is really, really difficult to do. All of the Hebrew poet experts look at this and they go, yeah, this could have been, a, this could have been a, a battle cry at the time, right? This could have been something that they would have chanted at the time to just uh, des- devastation, desolation, destruction, these types of things. So she's empty, she's less desolate, she's waste. The heart melts and the knees shake or smite together. Much pain is in every side. This is the word again. Right? So they are, they are hurting in their innermost parts because they are so terrified. Their knees are knocking together and they are shaking. This is a scary place to be. And all their faces are drained of color. Does this sound like a fun... Anybody want to volunteer to be a Ninevite at this point? I don't, I don't think so, right? So verse 11, now he gets really personal. Now he's now it's just mean. I'll just be honest, it's just mean. Um, you know, this is... Yeah, I better not. I won't do that. Okay. Yep. So, uh, mm, but could I, though? I want to talk about Pulp Fiction, but I'm not going to talk about Pulp Fiction because Darla gets upset when I talk about movies too much, and I've already quoted two today. I think she only caught one, but that's okay. All right, that's enough. All right. Verse 11. Where is the dwelling or the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? And we've already talked about this lion motif throughout this Assyrian history, where the young lion walked the lioness and the lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. 
So in, in case you're thinking I'm just making this stuff up, there, we have books of ancient records of Assyria and Babylon where uh, kings of uh, Assyria, one of them said, I am lion brave. Uh, Sennacherib, he's actually described in, uh, was that, Second Kings, somewhere in the early teens. Uh, he said, like a lion I raged. So this is a very simple theme that they have going through. Verse 12, the lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs. Hear the emphasis. Killed his lionesses, filled his caves with prey. Now, why would he be talking about how the lions killed here? Anybody know? Because the Assyrians are evil people. Let me read you from uh, the journals of some of the Assyrian kings. This is Ashur Nazi Paul II. This is uh, 200 years before Ashur Paul. I built a pillar over against his city gate. I flayed, that means takes the skin off, all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar, and some upon the pillar on stakes I impaled, and others I fixed to stakes round about the pillar. Many within the border of my own land I flayed, and I spread their skins upon the walls. I cut off the limbs of the high officers, of the high royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire, and many I captured alive. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others I cut off their noses and their ears, and the eyes of many men I put out. I made one heap of the living and another of the heads, and I bound their heads to vines round about the city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire." Right. Humanitarian of the Year Award? No, not at all. This, is, this was 50 years, this was, a, this was 150 years before Jonah showed up to Nineveh. This is why Jonah was scared to go to Nineveh, right? I, I, I remember telling you guys back when we went through Jonah that there were piles of body parts all around Nineveh to say, hey, if you want to come and do evil to us, this is how you're going to end up. Um, I, I don't have time nor really the stomach to tell you the other page, page 97. It is just... It is really spectacularly awful. Um, but it's, it's spectacularly awful. It really is. It's just nasty. So when he talks about these lions viciously killing their prey, he's talking about the Assyrians and how he ha they have treated all the people that they have conquered. And he is, Nahum is saying here, this is going to happen to you. Because, verse 13, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour or uh, consume your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice or this bleeding of your messengers shall be heard no more. And there's actually an interesting story in 2 Kings 18 about the messengers of the Assyrian Empire and how it would have been great to shut them up. Uh, but I'll let you read that on your own. So this... Um, what I wanted to do as we went through today to talk, was talk to you about how the historical records that we know about completely and totally back up and align the scriptural record. So application number one, um, God's prophecies will come to pass. God's prophecies will come to pass. So we talked about this picture several times. The prophet is here. He's looking out. He's not exactly sure how far out. For Nahum, the immediate uh, fulfillment of the prophecy was really just 25, 35, maybe as many as 40 years away. 
Uh, it's, it's possible Nahum even saw the prophecy uh, come to pass. So God's prophecies will come to pass. So what do we do with that? Number one, believe all his prophecies and share the gospel accordingly. I mean, there's very few times in your life, uh, whether regarding your family or your business or anything that you're involved in, do you know the future, right? I mean, I, how often do you know the future? I don't, I don't know the future very often at all. But we actually know the future. It's ridiculous. He literally wrote it down for us, and he has preserved it in a book so that we can see and read. So we should respond accordingly as we go through. Oh, man, you're killing me, Sean. This is awesome. All right, I got to say this. All right. Human bunting? Is that what you said, Darla? <laughs> that is really nasty idea. Bunting is the stuff that's like the, the decoration at the bottom of a table, right? There you go. And then body part Pinterest. Ooh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to bet that that domain name is available, Sean. So <laughs> I'll leave that to you. All right. So God's prophecies will come to pass. Number two, no enemy can stand before God. I mean, do, do we see this? It's the most powerful nation on the earth, their most powerful city on the earth, walls that were literally impenetrable, and we couldn't find them for a couple of thousand years. <laughs> right? Um, so examine our lives, number two on the personal lives, to ensure we are on the Lord's side. I hear, I hear this assumed so often. Uh, but let's make sure that we are examining, right? And then number three, I would say God at times uses the sins of his enemies to judge his enemies, right? This description of these lions, right? He's going out these vicious attacks, and what happens to them? These vicious attacks, right? In today's vernacular, most people would go, oh, that's karma. Uh, no, that's judgment. That's justice. That's God being the sovereign king of the universe and doing what only God can do. So don't, don't make up something like karma. Uh, so what do I say we should do with that? I'd say we should perform our vows and proclaim good tidings. Back at the end of chapter 1, that's what he calls Judah to do, perform their vows and proclaim the good tidings. Because there is good news in the midst of all of this. All right, so next week and the week after, we're going to do chapter 3 because it's a little bit longer and there's some summary stuff and we got to get some Hebrew verbs in there too. So I want you to understand kind of just to, we'll, we'll like put three drops of the vermouth in. Um, oh, thank you, Lord. That was awesome. I've never had that happen before. The thing that I forgot to talk about fall off the uh, pulpit. So I should probably mention it then. Um, so Brian Smith got me this book. Uh, it's just building a theological library. This is from Danny Aiken. Uh, he is the president of the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, pretty smart dude. Uh, this is part of his library, uh, and for every book in the Bible, and for most major topics in the Bible, he has the best books listed that you should go read if you're going to teach this, or if you're going to go study this, or learn this, and what I do for each book that we study is I go buy the ones with a little asterisk next to them, because those are the best, and he says those are the ones that a lay person can understand, and so far he's been mostly right, but that's, those are the, the resources that I'm using. I am, I am not typing into Google, what does this mean? Uh, like, this is how you end up following crazy theology, right? So we want to use good sound resources, so that's where uh, the resources that I'm using come from. All right, so uh, the rest there is on your handout as far as your homework, uh, your extra credit. Let me watch the Bible Project video. If I don't get more hands, we're going to show it in class. All right, good. All right, so this is our Facebook page. Uh, jump over there and... Uh, 
share any feedback or thoughts, uh, you can subscribe to the lesson, uh, the Bible Project video, the Sunday school stuff, and then the weekly update. All right, so the weekly update's on your table. So if you will take a minute or two or five and read through and pray as a table over these prayer requests, share new prayer requests, uh, then after you are finished with that, you are free and dismissed. And maybe Gary's sermon this morning won't be uh, judgment and burning of body parts. So you may get some positive good news somewhere this morning. So, all right. But uh, thank you so much for coming to Sunday School today, guys. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to our weekly email. You can do both at OurSundaySchool.com.